Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 11.2 Firewall Last week we introduced the 11th wonder of the ancient world, the Great Library at Alexandria. Not a wonder in the traditional sense, when we think of wonders of the ancient world. The library was not some magnificent construction project. It was rather a wonder of knowledge, and became, essentially, the first internet and university ever to exist. The amount of books that was stored there, we could not possibly know the full amount. But it was probably somewhere between 700,000 and 1 million books. For a time when paper was more rare than gold, this is an astonishing accomplishment. By hook or by crook, the Greeks ruling Alexandria were determined to make it the learning center of the world. And boy, did they succeed. But with all those books and all those languages and with as much storage space that was needed to house them all, how did the librarians, scribes, and leaders of the library keep track of everything? Even with our modern computers, barcodes, and electronic tracking, stuff constantly goes missing. But once again, the ancient people proved to be more resourceful, dedicated, and hard-working than we often think of them or give them credit for. Galen, a Greek philosopher, surgeon, and physician, the one that we mentioned last week, wrote down that everything that was needed for each book in the library was recorded. He tells us that the records kept by the scribes recorded everything. The book's title, its author, its editor, the place of origin, its length in lines, and whether or not the manuscript was mixed, containing more than one work, or unmixed, a single text. With possibly hundreds of books arriving at the library each day, this would have been a monumental task for the scribes. But they undoubtedly had help. As we have seen time and time again here on this show, the ancient peoples were incredibly efficient. There were undoubtedly a number of scribes at the entrance or in a main office where the books were first brought to. Whether it was brought to them by the individual who wrote it, a proxy, or a soldier or a slave who confiscated it, they would have told the scribe all the information that we just covered. From there, slaves or apprentices would have taken them and put them in their appropriate place in the library, with the scribes making notes as to where the book was housed. This system would have been incredibly efficient and could handle a large number of books coming into the library any given day. Beyond that, though, we know that there was an intensive survey of the entire library done. It was written in the 3rd century BC as the library was reaching its height in its collections. This survey, a monstrous task, was given to Callimachus, a Greek poet and scholar. His job was to document everything that the library held in every field of learning. His finished work is known as the Pinakis, or tables, 
and it documented the entire collection of the Great Library. Amazingly, a few fragments from that work still survive today, more than 2,200 years later. From these fragments, we know that there were a whole host of topics housed in the library, such as rhetoric, law, epics, tragedies, comedies, lyric poetry, history, medicine, mathematics, natural science, and a whole host of miscellaneous other topics. If these are just a few of the topics that we know were in the library, we can only imagine what else they had there. While Demetrius, the man we mentioned last week and the founder of the Great Library, gets all the headlines for being the first librarian, so to speak, there were a couple of others who made major improvements to the library. One of these head librarians was Enodotus of Ephesus. He was the librarian for 15 years, from 285 to 270 BC. Xenodotus was the first librarian to organize all the books in the library in alphabetical order. With no computers, barcodes, or tracking, this would have been an incredibly difficult task, and rather mundane. And while it must have been a logistical nightmare, once completed, it would have made finding any book in the library that much easier. And with the library housing up to a million books, any system to making finding a book easier would have been most welcome by everyone. But perhaps the most famous contribution to the library that Xenodotus made was his editions of Homer's classics, the Odyssey and the Iliad. While newer and modern editions of classics are common today, they were certainly not in the ancient world, particularly for some of the most famous Greek writings ever. The different editions of Homer's classics show the scholarly side of the library at Alexandria. The men who worked there were progressive scientists, scholars, writers, etc., and were determined to continue to grow the knowledge base that was already there. Xenodotus was succeeded as the head librarian by a man named Callimachus of Cyrene. Callimachus was mentioned by the Roman historian Strabo because he was, quote, held in high honor by the Egyptian kings, end quote. Callimachus's main contribution was a 120-book bibliographical survey of all the known Greek writers. This book was broken down into numerous categories such as epics, tragedies, comedies, histories, medicine, rhetoric and law, etc. Such a work was monumental in the ancient world, not only for its difficulty, but also because it would have been highly valued by the Greeks, for this was a complete list of the entire Greek library that they knew about and could get a hold of. Any well-educated Greek would have definitely wanted a copy of this. But an interesting fact about the scribes and librarians who worked at the Great Library of Alexandria is how these men got paid. And perhaps this is why these librarians wrote such massive projects. A scribe or writer's pay was based on the quality of writing and the number of lines of text that they wrote. Roman Emperor Diocletian wrote this about the pay for a scribe or a writer at the library. He said, quote, 
to ascribe for the best writing 100 lines, 25 denarii. For second quality writing 100 lines, 20 denarii. To a notary for writing a petition or legal document 100 lines, 10 denarii. Such payment was most likely similar when the library was founded. But perhaps certain scribes, writers, or librarians received more money depending on what they wrote. But either way, the great library at Alexandria at its height was a well-oiled machine. Books were brought to the library for inspection. If deemed worthy, they would be catalogued and placed in the library. Scribes and writers could copy famous or important works so that more than one person or people could read them. Books were brought from around the world to be translated and copied. Vitruvius, a Roman writer in the first century AD, thanked the scribes, writers, and librarians of the Great Library for preserving the, quote, memory of mankind. Hence, we must render to them indeed the greatest thanks, because they did not let all go in jealous silence, but provided for the record and writing of their ideas in every kind, end quote. The library at Alexandria grew to be the single greatest physical collection of books and information in history at least that I'm aware of. Nowhere else in the world or throughout history has any one place held as much information as the great library at Alexandria. Josephus, a Jewish historian living in the first century AD, wrote about the collection housed at the great library. And when once Ptolemy asked how many ten thousands of books he had collected, he replied, that he had already about 20 times 10,000, but that in a little time, he should have 50 times 10,000. Whatever that final number was, it was astronomical, and the great library at Alexandria housed all the important literary works of the ancient world. The great library was a center of literature, scholarly works, and research for several hundred years, but as amazing as this library was, its demise is shrouded in mystery. So much so, that there are a good number of modern historians who do not believe that the great library actually existed at all. But how was it destroyed? Was it destroyed all at once, or in stages? There are many different stories circulating as to what happened to the great library at Alexandria. I won't go into all these stories here, some of them are way too obscure. However, one or two theories have dominated the historical narrative, and it is on those theories where we will hang our hats. The first problem for the Great Library was that, while its location was important to its growth, its location was also why it was destroyed. While Egypt thrived initially under the Ptolemies, by the first century BC, a new power was rising, Rome. And while Alexandria was still the greatest city in the ancient world, Egypt was certainly not the power she used to be. By the mid-first century BC, the balance of power was officially shifting. There was a certain Roman general and member of the governing triumvirate who was changing the world forever, whether he knew it or not. His name is Julius Caesar. Having just conquered Gaul, modern-day France, Caesar's popularity was rising, 
and that of Pompey, another member of the triumvirate, currently in Rome, felt threatened that Caesar would try to make himself a king and oust him from government. So he declared that Caesar was not allowed back into the Italian peninsula with his army. Caesar must submit himself alone to the Roman Senate. But Julius Caesar knew that if he did this, he would be exiled or executed. So he marched his army across the Rubicon River and entered Italy. By doing so, Julius Caesar was declaring war on Pompey. As Caesar approached Rome, Pompey and his supporters fled Rome and went south, eventually ending up in Alexandria. When Julius Caesar, pursuing Pompey, arrived in Alexandria himself shortly thereafter, he was greeted with a gift, Pompey's signet ring and his head. But this is not at all what Julius Caesar wanted. He did not want to kill Pompey. He wanted to mend bridges. Now, he would have no chance to do so. While such a murder of one of the most powerful Romans seems rather rash, Egypt, and Alexandria itself, was embroiled in a civil war of their own. Young Ptolemy XIII thought that he was the rightful heir to the throne. But his older sister, Cleopatra, thought she was the better option. These siblings, who were also married, were at each other's throats and had split Egypt and their capital of Alexandria in half. And it was Ptolemy XIII's men who had executed Pompey in an attempt to win over Julius Caesar and his arriving army. But instead, the opposite happened. This pushed Julius Caesar to the other camp and into the arms of Cleopatra. Now Cleopatra gets a lot of hate from history. She's portrayed as a slut, willing to sell her body to enhance her cause. But I think this is a bad portrayal of who she was. She was obviously very attractive, but if it's true that she was just selling her body to enhance her cause, that would not have been very attractive to Julius Caesar. Such a person could not be trusted. Instead, she was a very intelligent, powerful, and passionate woman. Such a woman would have threatened the Roman narrative, thus the slut-shaming she received from history. She was able to convince Julius Caesar and his men to join her in her struggle against her brother. Julius Caesar must have thought she would have been a great queen of Egypt, and one that would be loyal to Rome if he helped her. But it was from this union that the great library met its demise. Sometime either in 48 or 47 BC, during a battle between Ptolemy's forces and the Julio-Cleopatran forces, a fire broke out in the harbor. Julius Caesar, in a desperate attempt to prevent the Ptolemic forces from taking control of Alexandria's harbor, ordered his troops to light his own ships on fire. However, with the fire started, such a large blaze amidst the conflict would have been impossible to contain. As such, it spread to the royal palace grounds, which were close to the harbor. And on those palace grounds, the great library stood no chance. With all those books, it was begging to go up in flames. And it did, almost instantly. 
This theory for the destruction of the Great Library was famously introduced by Greek historian Plutarch in his book The Life of Caesar. Plutarch said that when the enemy endeavored to cut off his communication by sea, he, Caesar, was forced to divert that danger by setting fire to his own ships, which, after burning the docks, then spread on and destroyed the Great Library. Julius Caesar himself, writing in the third person in his Commentaries on the Civil War, described the situation as follows. If they made themselves masters of these, Caesar being deprived of his fleet, they would have the command of the port and the whole sea, and could prevent him from procuring provisions and auxiliaries. So Caesar gained the day, and set fire to all those ships, and to others which were in the docks, because he could not guard so many places with so small a force. This theory gained further support in the first century AD, about a hundred years after Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. When Seneca, a Roman philosopher, wrote that 40,000 books were burned during the fighting in Alexandria. Roman historian Polus Orosius wrote in the 5th century, So perished that marvelous monument of the literary activity of our ancestors, who had gathered together so many great works of brilliant geniuses. In regard to this, however true it may be, that in some of the temples there remained up to the present time book chests, which we ourselves have seen, and that, as we are told, these were emptied by our own men in our own day, when these temples were plundered. This statement is true enough, yet it seems fairer to suppose that other collections had later been formed to rival the ancient love of literature, and not that there had once been another library which had books separate from the 400,000 volumes mentioned, and for that reason had escaped destruction. According to these accounts, the Great Library was destroyed in the 1st century BC during the civil war between Ptolemy XIII and his sister Cleopatra. But it is also here where we run into some difficulties with the historical account. While the writings we just mentioned speak of the destruction of the Great Library, other writings from ancient historians say something else. First century Roman historian Suetonius wrote about the Library of Alexandria during the reign of Claudius, who ruled Rome from 41 to 54 AD. To conclude, he even wrote books in Greek, 20 volumes of Etruscan history, and 8 of Carthaginian. The city of Alexandria acknowledged these works by adding a new wing to the museum called the Claudian in his honor, and by having the Etruscan history publicly recited from end to end once a year, by relays of readers in the old wing, and the Carthaginian history likewise, in the new. I can understand why these two accounts seem to contradict each other. If the Great Library was destroyed in the 1st century BC, how then, about a hundred years later, would it be rebuilt with a whole new addition made to it? But that's not how this reads to me. The way I understand the texts is the museum and the library were separate parts of the same complex. The way I see it, the Great Library and the museum were like hospitals are now. 
multiple buildings connected, but each one having its own specialty. If the Great Library and the Museum were built as such, then both historical accounts can be right. The library part was destroyed in the first century BC, but the museum was able to withstand the flames. And it was perhaps in the old ruins of the first library of Alexandria that they built the Claudian wing. To me, this is how it went. While the great library was destroyed in the first century BC, the museum part of the complex was not destroyed by the flames, allowing the Egyptians to rebuild part of the library. But it would never be the same. Despite the destruction of the main library in the first century AD, as we learned last week, there was a smaller library to the south of the city. So part of the great library escaped the initial destruction. But this second smaller library would be destroyed in an equally violent manner as its parent library had been. Housed in the temple of Serapium, it was kept safe for a few more centuries despite the Roman acquisition of Egypt. But when Rome split in two and Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire, that spelled trouble. Byzantine Emperor Theodosius I was an incredibly zealous ruler and attempted to wipe out all forms of paganism from his empire. To do this, he destroyed pagan temples, religious sites, and anything connected to a pagan god. In 391 AD, he issued a decree for the destruction of all the pagan temples in Alexandria. With this imperial decree in hand, the Bishop of Alexandria, one of the most powerful men in Christendom, Theophilus, personally led an attack on the Temple of Serapium. He and his followers spared nothing in their destruction of the temple. Eunaeus a witness to the destruction of the temple, describes it this way. He says that Theophilus and his followers, quote, brought destruction on the temple and made war on its contents. Only the foundations they could not take away because of the magnitude of its stone blocks which they were unable to remove. But they spoiled and destroyed practically everything, end quote. When the temple had been destroyed, Theophilus ordered a church built on that site, and any remains of the great library at Alexandria were lost. The destruction of the great library at Alexandria seemed complete. Even when the Arabs came and kicked the Byzantines out of Egypt in the 7th century, there was no mention of anything about the great library. Until kind of randomly in the 13th century AD, when an Arab report was written by several Arab historians saying that the general who conquered Egypt in 642 AD, Amr ibn al-As, had burned the books of the ancient library at Alexandria. This writing, though, was deemed to be fictitious and written purely as propaganda. Now, why it mentions the great library at Alexandria by name, who knows? There are plenty of theories by historians as to why this would be the case. But we have no need to go into those, as they have no relevance to our story. But accounts like these prove that the Great Library at Alexandria, although it was gone for centuries, 
still captivated the minds and imaginations of the people not only of Egypt, but of the entire Near East. The Great Library was a wonder unlike any other on this list. It's not a wonder because of its astonishing size, what material it was made from, intimate carvings because it housed a great treasure, or even where it was built. It's the only wonder on this list that we know nothing about the size of the building itself. But the Great Library at Alexandria deserves its spot on this list because it is a wonder of knowledge. Again, the ancient world is often viewed as a place and time filled with savages, nitwits who can knew nothing and cared not for technology, science, medicine, mathematics, etc. But the Great Library at Alexandria proves this concept completely wrong. They perhaps cared more for the advancement of their knowledge base and their education than even we do today. While we will never know the size of the building or the collection of books housed in the wonder of the ancient world, the Great Library of Alexandria reminds us of two things. One, the ancient peoples were significantly more advanced, educated, and intelligent than we here in the modern world give them credit for. And two, that the desire and thirst for knowledge is nothing new. It's as old as time itself. And honestly, I doubt we will ever reach a point when we are satisfied. The Great Library at Alexandria is the 11th wonder of the ancient world. With us having completed our visit, we have officially passed the halfway point on our list. 11 down, 10 to go. I can't believe we're already here past the halfway point. I want to thank all of you who listen to the show. You guys are awesome and I love doing this each week. And who knows, this list might extend beyond 21. We'll have to wait and see how school goes. But for now, we will shift our attention to the 12th wonder on our list. This wonder, I can assure you, will take most of you by surprise. For this next wonder is totally different than anything else on this list. It was built in a moment of madness or brilliance. You get to decide. But it was a wonder that would prove that madness and brilliance are not mutually exclusive. And a city in modern-day France would be the hinge upon which world history would change forever. Oh, 